Welcome to the Bible is Lit podcast, where we explore the Bible as a work of literature. We dig into themes, patterns, motifs, archetypes, and all kinds of crazy literary criticism and interpretation. We also tackle controversial topics from the Bible and riff on listener-generated questions and topics, ultimately looking for that question of what it means to be fully human. Greetings. You are tuned in to the Bible is Lit podcast. Today we are continuing our study of the hero's journey in the Bible. Now, as I said before, there are much more, many more rather, hero's journey arcs you can trace throughout the Bible. And then you can even do studies where you're tracing, for instance, the whole people of Israel, a whole nation and they're following that similar pattern of Campbell's monomyth. Joseph Campbell, you know, kind of popularizing as he went through and studied these um, narrative patterns through different literary traditions. He named it the monomyth and called it also the hero's journey. Um, he's not the guy who created the narrative pattern. He just gave language to it. And now that is what we call it. You can get all that information in the background in some of our previous podcast. Uh, for the sake of this course, we looked at Abraham to start it. Then we moved into Moses's narrative hero's journey arc. We looked at David last time. And today we are finishing it up with Jesus or Jesus of Nazareth. So I'm just going to mention a few of the places where you can connect all the dots into some of the details we'll get into today. Uh, Luke, the second chapter, Matthew, the fourth chapter, John, the second chapter, specifically verses 1 through 11, uh, Matthew chapter 20, 17 through 34, then some prophecy going back into Isaiah, the 53rd chapter, uh, verses 3 through 12, John, the 19th chapter, 1 Peter 3, 19, which is a Really cool instance and also a can of worms that gets opened up. And then Mark uh, 16 and verses 14 through 20 as he issues out the Great Commission. And then we see how Jesus' life on earth ends. So those are some places you can read. That's where we're pulling all of this from. Obviously, there's more text you can read, but we're trying to follow this pattern, this progression of how... Jesus's journey, how Jesus's life in the text lines up with a typical hero's journey. And so getting to a start, we start with a dude in very humble beginnings. Okay, so Jesus is born one to a virgin, a virgin Mary in this lines up with this motif that is established Way, way, way back with um, Sarah and Abraham. Sarah is barren, you know, the father of the whole nation of Israel. The physical, biological line through which Jesus comes through starts with a supernatural birth. Again, Sarah, the mother of the nation of Israel in a way before it's named Israel, but the mother of the line. She cannot have kids. God 
as a 90-year-old woman grants her womb to be fruitful and eventually she gives birth to Isaac. <clears throat> so it's established way back with Abraham, but this idea of a supernatural kind of birth. And so when Jesus is born to Mary, who is a virgin, it's re-invoking this motif. It's re-invoking this pattern, as Dr. Tim, Tim Mackey calls them. It's a hyperlink, this virgin Mary giving birth to Jesus, the Savior of Israel, the Savior of the world. Even it connects you all the way back to all of these old stories and this old motif that's all throughout the Old Testament and even into the New Testament, slightly before Jesus is born we have a similar instance happen with mary's sister jesus's cousin john the baptist and so this thing even goes back further to the garden of eden when god tells eve i'm going to put enmity between your seed and her seed talking or sorry the serpent seed and your seed after they after the fall and he's like, I'm going to multiply your pain in childbirth. It was not that, oh, all of a sudden now having a kid is hard in sense of the, the physical act of it and it being painful for a woman. The insinuation was a couple of things there. The insinuation was that one, members of your line, other humans that are related to you might struggle to be fruitful and give birth. The other thing is, it's like raising kids is hard. They might do things that go against how you have raised them also. So this whole pattern is established. Jesus being born to Mary, a virgin. She's being, um, she's engaged to Joseph, which there's a whole can of worms we can get into there. And they're on the run, more or less. They're having to go back to Nazareth where Joseph is from, or Bethlehem, rather. That's where they end up for a census. So Joseph lives and works in Nazareth, but his family's from Bethlehem. So they have to go back for the census in Bethlehem so they can be counted. And part of this counting is Rome tightening the noose around what is going to eventually happen to Israel under this this um, rule. Things are coming to a boiling point there. But there's no room in the inn, right? No room in the inn for their family. And so there's, there's a question there. Is, is this really the case? I mean, it could be. Bethlehem's not a big city. It's a little farming town. And so there might not have been any room in the inn, but he has family there. Why wouldn't Joseph be able to just stay with a family member? So what is the subtext? A big thing in biblical narrative is the details that are included are important, but the details that are left out create space for meaning. So the details that aren't included are supposed to lead you to ask questions. So what's the detail that's left out here? He has family there in town. Why doesn't he stay with a family member? There's no room at the inn. What's the insinuation? 
they don't believe Mary is a virgin. So one of, it's a couple of possibilities then. Um, was Mary... Did Mary get knocked up by another dude and now Joseph is taking care of her? Again, really bad look. That goes against the norms of their culture. Or B, Joseph and her got it on and she's not a virgin. But again, bad look against the norms of their culture. And so instead of them staying with a family member, staying in the inn, they don't want anything to do with them because that act would be considered unclean and they don't want to bring shame upon the family name. So they end up giving birth in a barn, which we'll get into in a second, right? But humble beginnings, Jesus born to a family on the run. We're about to get to why they're on the run. What's going on here? A couple of things Jesus shares in common um, with Moses here also, Jesus born in a manger, in a basket, right? Just as it is said, Moses was placed in a basket and sat down in the Nile. So there's a link there between this really, really humble beginning there in a basket, okay? And then this basket represents a bunch of different things. And Moses, has since, since he's being set down on the Nile, it's like his little mini ark, and this is through which, through Moses, Israel is brought into the next stage of their journey as a nation, and their legacy is preserved. Just as Noah, humanity is preserved through Noah and his ark, right, being set on the water. Jesus in his basket, humanity will be preserved through him, Moses in his little basket where he is set. So there's just... Um, it's what you call a word motif. There's a word motif going on in just those few connections and how Moses specifically and Jesus specifically are born. Another huge connection between Moses and Jesus in their births. All right. Moses is born during a genocide. This is where Pharaoh is like, um, yeah, Israel's getting too populated. I'm afraid if they rise up and come after us, right, they would they would destroy us because there's as many of them or more than them than there are of us. So we got to do something about it. Um, so we're going to kill kill all the babies, all the babies between these ages. They instructed the midwives to kill them. The midwives actually lie about it, and. Um, so instead of doing it, they're instructed to just drown the babies in the river. This is where Moses, um, why he is placed in the river in a basket. It looks like as if he's being drowned, but he is not. Okay, but Moses born during a genocide. Jesus born during a genocide. The thing with his genocide is this was technically implemented by his own people, Herod the Jewish king wanting to be the only king of the Jews hears about the prophecy and it's like, oh, well, I'll take care of that. And it ends up being a detriment to him anyway. So Jesus's family not only is not welcome in the end, and that could be another reason as to why Mary and Joseph aren't welcome in the end or aren't welcome staying with family because she's pregnant. And if it's a boy, then... They're, they're criminals, more or less, and anyone involved in knowing about it is complicit. But also, 
that Jesus is born during a genocide, born during something known as the massacre of the innocents. And there's that connection to, to him and Moses. Then shortly after Jesus is born, his family actually flees to Egypt. And they're in exile in Egypt, much like Moses, much like the children of Israel are in exile, are in slavery in Egypt. So you have Israel as a whole nation there, then Jesus representing the rep, representing the um, salvation of Israel and the rest of the human race as that matter, being exiled in Egypt through a growing up period. So archetypally, there's this symbol where these layers overlap between the two, right? So Jesus is born though. He's born in a barn. He's born outside of the major city. And then again, in Biblic, in the Bible, cities represent violence. Cities represent man trying to do things their own way. Where is the country, agriculture, shepherding, roaming, wilderness, and all represents reliance on God and peace. So you have Jesus is born in a barn right? Agriculture out in the country, not part of the city where violence is born. And this goes all the way back to Cain and Abel. Cain kills his brother, right? And then God throws him a bone. God doesn't even really curse him. God just says, here, go out here and wonder, rely on me. I'm even going to put a mark on you and accursed is going to be anyone who harms you. God protects him. And then Cain, instead of following God's orders, builds a city. And the city becomes increasingly violent. And that's where the pattern starts. So cities represent violence. So Jesus is born outside the city, representing he's a man of peace. He's a king of peace. And this kingdom that he's coming to establish is going to be something completely different than just coming into and building another city and ruling with an iron fist through violence, just like Israel has been trying to do for millennia at this point. And, you know, especially if you go look through at through the period of judges, how violent and messed up that whole period was as well. So there's a lot going on with Jesus's birth and how it lines up with different literary patterns that go both into the Old and New Testament and crossing over. And again, that is done intentionally. It's not coincidentally. The Old Testament authors knew what they were doing and designing their stories this way. And the New Testament authors were well read on these stories. And so they're dropping little Easter eggs all throughout the New Testament as they reinterpret what the religion that they grew up in actually was pointing them to. So we go a little further into Jesus's journey and there's some cool instances in his childhood, in his upbringing. At some point they come back to Israel from Egypt and they settle in Nazareth and Jesus grows up and there's some cool things that happen there that we're not going to get into um, and Matthew 4, though, is kind of like Jesus's invitation to reveal himself publicly 
it's in a way his call to adventure. His call to adventure is a little different because at this point he's 30 years old. He's working in daddy's business, like being a carpenter, being, you know, um, a handyman more or less is what a carpenter would be. And he's working in that. At some point, Joseph has died. So it's him and mom. He would be the oldest. So he would be responsible for taking care of Mary on top of that. And they're at this wedding. His cousin, John the Baptist, keeps getting on him like, bro, when are you, like, you going to start a ministry? When are you going to like do what you're called to do? What does this look like? You're 30 years old and you haven't done anything. And so they're at this wedding in Matthew the 4th. I'm sorry. And John, the second chapter, and this is sort of, um, to me, I would label this as his call to adventure. They run out of wine, marry his mother's friends with the hosts, and then Jesus pops his first miracle, turning the water into wine. And there's a tons of symbolism that we could break down there, but this is the call to adventure. And this is sort of a a crossing of the threshold moment as well, because once Jesus pops this miracle, boom, he's public. And then you open the door for criticism, for praise and for talk. And it turns into something else. So he answers that call out of a duty to honor his mother and honor the people there to preserve their dignity because if the host would have ran out of wine, it would have ruined their reputation. So he does it to preserve their reputation. But now we have entered into a different world, a different dimension for Jesus at this stage in his journey. But if you look at how the narrative is constructed shortly before that, He undergoes this trial where he is in the wilderness. He goes out into the wilderness. He's on a 40-day fast. And he says at one point, he says, To the Lord, a thousand years is a day, and a day is a thousand years. And so that 40 years wandering, or that 40 days wandering through the wilderness um, with no food or water symbolically represents the 40 years that Israel was wandering around in the wilderness of Sinai and God was miraculously providing for them. And so he's out there and the devil appears to him or the accuser uh, appears to him and they have this whole teate about what's allowable, what's not. The devil, the accuser offers Jesus these things and Jesus refuses and then something very interesting happens. He was like, well, if you're the son of God, like turn these stones into bread and eat them. And Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, you know, kind of insinuating that, hey, you got to take this whole thing in context, but two, very directly relating back to yeah, God provided the bread for Israel when they were in the wilderness Israel did not provide for themselves. Me turning rocks into bread would be me providing for myself, but not depending upon God. And this is where Jesus kind of passes this first initiation. This would be his initiation, which then allows him to go into the first miracle that he pops. And then um, a lot of things happen after that as a result. But we see this pattern, right, being established 
in Jesus's life as he goes throughout his journey and moves towards his death, which seems inevitable. Um, the, the closer you read the story, it's just kind of like, yeah, this dude, um, this dude's on a collision course with an early death. Um, and he foretells his death a little later in the book of Matthew. Um, but it gets back to this whole pattern, right? He's born in the country. He's born to a poor family on the run. And he tells his disciples in Matthew 20, starting in verse 17, one of the things he says is, whoever wishes to be great will be the least. Whoever is the least will be the greatest in my kingdom. And so he's using both irony and creating a paradox here to show them like, hey, the thing that you think is great and how you think this is all going to happen is actually going to happen much differently. All right, you look, and then you compare this to David, right? David receives his call to adventure. He's just a little shepherd boy working on the farm, and this crazy prophet slash high priest named Samuel comes in and says, hey, bro, you're going to be the next king of Israel. And David's like, okay, cool. What do I do in the meantime? He's like, keep looking after your father's sheep. This little shepherd, this little farm boy eventually becomes king of what becomes the most powerful nation in the world at the time. Similarly to Jesus, right? He's in the margins, in the margins, in the margins, eventually comes into Jerusalem. The big city is killed in the big city, but then that creates this cascade, this tsunami of what the true kingdom is supposed to be, and it's not a city made by hands, which inevitably leads to violence. It's a city built of the heart and the spirit. And so um, Jesus enters into the city, right? So you have this overlap of Jesus representing a bunch of things. The temple, right? He says, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. I'm putting my spirit upon you. And when, when I leave the same spirit that resurrects me from the dead now takes up residence in you, which gives us a clue as to Jesus is actually the representation of Eden, as to what happened when Jesus died before we see him resurrected and walking around on the earth. And again, this is a controversial for a lot of Christians. It's a huge can of worms, like thousands and thousands and thousands of pages have been written upon this. But just to, just to trace 
right? His hero's journey, each step in the monomyth. Here's what happens. First uh, Peter three, 18, it says, for Christ also suffered once for the sins of the righteous and for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Okay. We kind of covered all that already, but here's, here's the interesting part in terms of how it connects to the hero's journey in that resurrection. Like what happened when he died before he came back to life? It says in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So it gives us this image. Peter here gives us this image and opens up this mystery. He said, I know what Christ was doing. And theoretically, he probably does because he walked with Christ both before Christ died and Christ appears to him in the flesh after he dies in the story and then also Christ appears when he, to them in various forms when he ascends into heaven, which is how Christ's hero's journey ends in a way. So Peter gives us this image though of Christ descending into the underworld and actually ministering to the sons of disobedience. Specifically, we're talking about those who died in the flood of Noah, and then there's this whole a whole history that we could study about what was going on in the earth at the time of Noah, because they didn't have the offer of the gospel. So it literally gives this image of Jesus in the underworld preaching to people who were lost before the law of was established, so the law of Moses was established, or this new covenant that he comes to establish was there. Then Jesus emerges from the underworld. And he starts showing up to people, popping up over here, popping up over there, preaching a little bit, and then showing people um, what exactly it is that they missed, if that makes sense. So um, his, his, you know, on the road to Emmaus in Luke is just a really fabulous one because the people he's talking to do not even recognize him. And then they recognize who he is, and he says he walked them through the scriptures and showed them, like, here's where you missed what was really going on, and here's how it's supposed to happen. But we get to the end of Jesus' life, and we have this really interesting thing that happens to him in terms of, like, his return home. So you're talking about, well, he, he has a physical birth, but like um, you kind of look at where is his home? Well, he's not born in a home. His family's on the run. So again, him and Moses have this in common. Moses is born to a slave family in Egypt. He's raised as a member of the royal house, realizes his true identity, realizes who he truly is, ends up killing a member of his own nation, but he's only a part of that nation via adoption, not bloodline, not heritage, not legacy. He then is exiled, lives in exile, comes back, and then brings his whole nation out of Egypt and then dies on a mountaintop in the wilderness. But that's a great return home because of one, his closeness with God, two, he doesn't have a home. He was a slave 
or in exile his whole life. And so you mirror this with Jesus. Jesus is born to some poor people that are on the run. Joseph and Mary settle in Nazareth, but that is, again, not their home. Jesus leaves and is wandering all throughout the world at that time. And then eventually, right, dies in the city, the city of violence, the city of blood, is resurrected. He's walking about some more. And then we have this, um, we have this instance where um, he goes back home. Similar to Moses, like Moses dying on the mountaintop, symbolic of he's dying close to the presence of God. Um, some people speculate that he didn't actually die. You have this, this place right before Jesus died where he's transfigured. His apostles see him in all his glory. And then Elijah and Moses um, appear while Jesus is being transfigured. But here's what happens in Mark, the 16th chapter. Uh, we will... We'll start in verse 14 because we get the end of Jesus' hero's journey right here. His return home. And it's funny, like he has to be literally killed and resurrected and put some things in order before he can return home as we see it. So that's uh, Mark 16, verse 14. said, afterward, he appeared to the 11 themselves. And remember, there's 11 because Judas is... Um, as they were reclining at a table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and the hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. So there were reports that Jesus was back, and they denied it. And so he's like, bros, like y'all still haven't figured this out. Y'all walked with me in person for three years. You haven't figured this out. So he says to them, here's what I need you to do, bros. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation and that's everybody, not just members of their little group. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. If they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So giving them an image. And again, this is all highly symbolic language, a bunch of different layers to that more than just the doctrine you get at a Sunday service, but I'll leave it at that. Um, to Right now in this space is not the time and place to have that discussion. However, if you want to have that discussion with me, let me know and we can unpack that privately. Um, so verse 19, what happens to Jesus on his return home? So then the Lord Jesus after he had spoken to them was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God and they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. So it ends where it begins. And this is what is fun about John's gospel because John 1, John 1 starts with the divine origin of Jesus rather than the earthly origin of Jesus. Then we get to the end of Mark and we see Jesus returning home to heaven, to the Father, to the spiritual realm, and then leaving an inheritance for us on the earth to continue that work. So, there you have it. This is how Jesus' narrative arc mirrors the hero's journey or monomyth as termed by Joseph Campbell. 
And I hope you see a bunch of the connections that the four examples we looked at have in common. Thank you for listening. Uh, I hope this has inspired you to dig a little deeper. And if you have questions, as always, you can get at me for further discussion.